It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Goodbye, University. Hi, everyone. This is Janet here from IdentityShift.Ninja. I love saying that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm a little obsessed about it at the moment. Uh, just um, setting up my backup recording so that I've got, so I know what's happening. Okay. Uh, now, I'm going to, I'd like to welcome everyone who's on the line. Um, uh, hi to Guillaume. Hello. And, and hi to Brenda. Uh, Brenda's in chat. I don't know if she's dialed in as well. Uh, and we've got a couple of other people here, and I can't tell from my dashboard who they are. So, hello to everybody. It's uh, fantastic to see you here, or hear you here, or whatever. Um, I'm just going to barrel through some of this material today. I want to talk about belief, and um, because I think it's such an important question, and because it's part of Jeanette's um, Good Vibe University Year of Manifesta series, the, the topic for this month has been on belief, uh, and. It's such an interesting conversation to have in the world of deliberate creation. And, <laughs> and as soon as I knew what the topic was, I thought, I can't not talk about the brain because if we have beliefs, that's where they reside. We know that's where our thoughts and beliefs occur. occur so we kind of have to talk about the brain science of it um, or we don't have to. Um, but it's a, I think it's a useful thing, especially for people who might be feeling some struggle around this. <clears throat> so, so I want to make sure I'm delivering some nice juicy brain science in plain English um, uh, and there are two reasons for that. First of all is uh, I think if we, if we go back to Abraham's um, statement that a belief is just a thought we keep thinking, we can't really have this conversation in depth without looking to the mechanism that, that this happens through and that's the brain. And second of all, and this is where I get really lit up about it, is if we are using identity shifting, if we are shifting into a more expanded and authentic version of ourselves, <clears throat> the version who has this power to create what they want, we can't get there while we've still got our old brain and its landscape of, of old beliefs. It, you, it's really hard to step into a new identity with an old brain because it's it just you know, it's such a, a crucial part of what we do. So, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not talking about mind or intellect here. This isn't a conversation about head or heart as kind of these opposing forces. Um, uh, as, a, as a, you know, a geeky brain science fan, I'm the first one to say that manifesting a dream life is not a job for the intellect. You can't reason your way into a new identity. <clears throat> uh, so... It's about left and right brain. It's about logic and intuition. It's about balancing these things and having them working in harmony with everything else. So <clears throat> I was, excuse me, I just have to cough for a sec. Ah, that's better. So I was considering this question of belief from the perspective of identity shifting. Do we have to believe in what we're trying to create? If people who were there for Jeanette's first call for Good Vibe University on this topic, the question, one of the key questions that got discussed was, do we have to believe in what we're trying to create or is it sufficient to, to simply stop believing that our desire is impossible? 
And I thought back to my own experience and I thought back to everything I've read about belief and how it works in the brain and how it works in in terms of the, you know, we, we know a lot about, um, there's been a lot of research in positive psychology since the 1970s and only recently is the anatomical neuroscience kind of catching up with that because we're only recently able to measure things in sort of, we can now look at function in the brain at a microscopic level. We can look at it or rather at a cellular level so we can identify what's what's really happening there and see how <clears throat> the physical squishy wear uh, is related to what we've observed through psychology and how that then relates to everything we know from law of attraction. So from my own perspective, I thought I, I don't have to believe in the thing that I want to create, but I sure as hell have to believe that it's that things are possible. There's a great quote from Nelson Mandela. He said, one cannot be prepared for something while secretly believing it will not happen. And I think that really kind of sums it up. Because if we, you know, for those who believe completely and utterly in their power to create anything in the, that they want, they're already in that identity of master manifester. So they have this kind of, uh, what's the word, this meta-identity of master manifestors. So in a sense, they already do believe in all of the possibilities. Their brains are already on side, and that's great. That's fantastic. For the rest of us, and I'll put my hand up for not having that mastered 24-7, or at least having room for growth, uh, it's our brains that we want to get on side in this big game of belief. So I'd ask the question, am I currently living and expressing the fullest, most expanded capacity to believe that anything is possible? And when I ask that, ask that question for myself, I know that there are days when my brain tries to tell me that things aren't possible. So I know that I'm not there yet. And I know that the all I have to do is kind of reprogram my brain. And I, I like knowing that. I think that, that makes me feel, that gives me traction. It helps me feel empowered. And, and for me, it's a work in progress. And I suspect that that might be true for, for many others. So I think that belief in the thing we want is optional. It's fun if you can pull it off easily. And if it's not there yet, that's no reason to fall into the trap of seeing it as a struggle or worrying about it or worse, giving up on it completely. So not believing in it yet 24-7 doesn't mean anything. But I do think that secretly believing things can't happen can be a roadblock and it can stop you dead in your tracks. And I think that shifting this can be as easy as knowing how your brain works around belief and then making some decisions. So um, I will pause every so often for questions. So uh, and I've, ch I've just temporarily closed my chat window because, you know, brain capacity. So I haven't got any questions there yet. Uh, if anybody has questions, feel free to just interrupt me because I can barrel through this stuff without drawing breath. As anybody knows who's been on any of these calls with me. Um, so please just dive in and ask questions. Uh, but I will stop from time to time as well. So any questions so far? No? Excellent. So if you've heard me talk about the topic of brain science, you know that, um, uh, that uh, I'm coming from the perspective that our conscious experience of physical reality, so the stuff we become aware of, comes to us via our brains. Our brains deliver, uh, it, it, our brains receive 11 billion bits of information per second and they can process and deliver about 40. So we, we receive those 40 and that becomes our conscious awareness of reality. So how do our brains make that filtering decision about what to deliver and what not to? We know that our brains seek out evidence for what they already know to be true, know to be true, quote unquote. 
and they disregard information that doesn't fit. And that's especially true when we're in a kind of muggle, default, unaware mode of being. So the, the input that matches our existing beliefs is prioritised and we get more of the same. In psychology terms, it's called confirmatory bias. But basically, when you look at it from a law of attraction perspective, what we focus on, we get more of. Thoughts literally become things if we're looking at it from this perspective. So, for example, if I've experienced money difficulties in the past, my brain has begun to believe that money is hard to come by. And the longer my focus is there, the more evidence my brain delivers that proves my own unquestioned beliefs. Uh, Jeanette tells the story of tenants who fa whose rent failed to go into her bank account. She was so convinced that they hadn't paid, she, still, she, she couldn't see the payment that they swore they'd made over several visits to her online banking system and, and conversations with the property manager. So everyone, the, the tenants were saying, no, we've paid it. The property manager was saying, no, it's been paid. Jeanette couldn't see it. But it doesn't take a huge amount of energy to wiggle out of that confirmatory bias and take a step back and go, hang on a minute, is it worth questioning? And I know that's what Jeanette did. She, she took a step back. <clears throat> she realized she was caught in the story of non-paying tenants, took a mental step back from it, and then and allowed for the possibility of a different reality. She questioned her own confirmatory bias. She stepped back from it, and then she went and looked again, and sure enough, they had paid when they said they had. It was the... That she literally couldn't see it when it was that when when her brain was caught up in a powerful belief of these people won't pay on time. Uh, she didn't need to create a belief in the thing she wanted, the rent in the bank. All she had to do was to let go of that very convincing belief, that temporary convincing belief that her tenants hadn't paid. So the question is, how do we become really expert at letting go of those seemingly convincing beliefs? And this is. This is why I love the brain science, you guys. It's so much, it's so much easier than you might think. Uh, so the beliefs we hold are constructs based on past experience. Our brain predicts what's coming up in the future based on what it's already experienced. And a lot of this is to do with conscious and unconscious memory. So I want to flesh, I want to tease out some stuff about how memory works. I have talked about this before, but I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle this time. I'm coming at it from the angle of if we have a belief, we want to be able to question. We want to be able to question it completely, and if we understand how shaky that the, the foundation of that belief is, and that's memory. If we understand just how shaky memory truly is, it's much much easier to when we have that thought, when we have that have that moment of going, this could never happen, or we have that moment of saying, I have to. I have to work harder at manifesting this. Or we have that belief that says, I will only be happy with this particular type of manifestation. I have to have this specific thing in order to be happy. Any of those beliefs are worth questioning. So when we look at memory, we can, we can really shake the cage bars of that, of that belief. <clears throat> so beliefs are based on the constructs based on past experiences. But the past no longer exists. Well, uh, it, it, you know, if coming from quantum physics, time is, doesn't exist and it does all happen at the same time, but I'm not going down that rabbit hole today. <laughs> that's just bringing in another dimension that's too hard to, comp too hard to get my head around. So we'll assume that time is linear for the purposes of this conversation. We know that it's not. We know that we can go back and change it, but that's a separate conversation. It's a very exciting one, but it's not what I'm talking about today. So our only access to the past comes through our memories, both conscious and unconscious. That means any belief we have about 
thing as not being possible is only as reliable as the memory with which it is associated. So there are some things we know about memory. I will go through these fairly quickly because if you want to really dive in, there's a call I did for GVU called Remembering the Future. And that goes into this in a lot more detail uh, and looks at it from a slightly different angle, um, more to do with how we create a different future using memory, using this knowledge. But today I want to look at it just from that sense of how reliable is it. So we know that memory is incredibly fluid. The brain doesn't just simply, the, the old model we used to have, most of us grew up with this model of memory, that it's like a, a computer's hard drive or a filing cabinet where we store memory and then when we want to retrieve it, we go and look it up. We now know that this is completely wrong. That's not how memory works at all. The way that memory works is more like a Wikipedia entry. It's editable and it's dynamic. And the other thing, so, so, it's, so it's already not reliable. The other thing we know is that when we recall a memory, whether we're doing it consciously or unconsciously, our brain is not looking at the original file and simply showing it to us. What the brain has to do is it has to, it has to rewrite the memory and then look at the copy. So the way it works functionally is instead of looking at the original, it's like a monk in a scriptorium who's making a copy with you know, ink blots and, mis and typos and all sorts of little errors creeping in and you know, it's emphasizing and illustrating specific points that weren't emphasized the first time around. So this monk is making his copy and then he's looking at the copy he's made and relying on that as though it were the original and not realizing, <clears throat> pardon me, that it's a copy. So each recall, and, we, and that happens each time we recall it. So each time we recall a memory, each time our brain leans into a memory to try and work out what's going to come up next, <clears throat> it's another generation away from the original thing, incident, whatever it was. And not surprisingly, every time we recall that memory, especially if it's something that we are conscious of, if we're recalling it in our own head <clears throat> or we're telling our best friend or our coach or our therapist, that story can get distorted beyond recognition. And that's why siblings can disagree on a, on a shared childhood experience. Their memories are utterly real to each of them. Remember, they can only see, their brains can only see the copy that's been made each time it's been retold. And over the time, those details have shifted and moved and become enhanced and emphasized in different ways. So they might as well have been at two completely different events. And, and, they are, and neither is lying. Nobody's making anything up here. Both are passionately convinced by their respective memories because both of their memories are real, real in, un, in inverted commas. Um, they're, they're both true, quote unquote. So any belief about what's possible that has a memory at its heart, and they all do, is subject to question. So that's the first, that's the first bar to be, be loosened from that, you know, that trap of belief. Janet? Hello. Hi, yes. Janet. It's Brenda calling. Oh, calling. Hi, Brenda. <laughs> Hi, Brenda. Nice to Brenda talk calling. to you. <laughs> yeah, I just, just wondered, um, when it comes to recalling beliefs, every time you tell a story, it's, you're actually not, your brain's actually, yeah. I'm, I'm. Yeah, <laughs> hard to wrap your head around. It's actually recalling the last time, the last version of it. So, yeah, it's recalling the last version, making a new version, and then looking at the new version. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. And it doesn't matter, does that work the same way with each time 
uh, like I, I, at one point you said each time you retell the story, but mm-hmm. like I have a I have a story I've actually never ver- verbalized to anyone. I've never ever told yeah. anybody this story, but over the years, um, yes, I, I've sort of created a feeling impression story around that story that's really ugly, <laughs> a, yes. way uglier than it was probably ever meant to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yes, thank you for asking that question because yes, this works whether we're verbalizing to someone else or whether we're simply recalling it in our own heads. Okay. <clears throat> it, so it's it it becomes like that game of you know that we used to call terribly. We used to call Chinese whispers, where you know the the message gets passed along the line, and by the time it gets to the end, it's completely transformed. That's exactly what it yeah. looks like in, in terms of how the that's the consequence of this mechanism that the brain uses um, and it, it uses this mechanism for long-term storage so anything that's more than you know a few seconds old that we've that we remembered when we re- when we recall it internally it's exactly that same process of looking at the copy the, la- the most recent copy making a new one and then looking at that um, and so you know the, the the reason I talked about that in detail in that previous GVU call is that we can use that to our advantage when we know how that works so we can change that memory we can retell it in a new way we can consciously bring so what you could do for example with that ugly story is you could start writing it as a fairy story with the new with new details with much nicer details that you really like and keep doing that until um, you feel much more comfortable with that with that memory Okay, it, you can kind of make stuff up, even. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh my I like gosh. that. I'm going to get to that bit in a minute because okay. that's really really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, so, so uh, yes, uh, yeah. So, so the fluid nature of memory is something we can actually use to our advantage, and it's and when we realise that, but most beliefs are have a have a memory at their foundation, not a memory we're conscious of necessarily. Although those that's true too. Memories we're conscious of also play a part but just knowing how wobbly this stuff is makes it much more we, we have much more power than we think we do fantastic um okay cool uh, so i will i'll be covering that in just a second so i'll just jump into the next piece which is about false memories we also know from the brain science again from the research that our choice of words can alter our memories and even create false memories so stories that we would swear are true that really happened that never happened at all. Uh, I want to tease out just, I'll tell you about one research, one piece of research that was done by Elizabeth Loftus. Um, she talks about this in her TED talk, so anyone who's interested in finding out more, it's called The Fiction of Memory. And she's looking at it specifically, She her work is to do with how memory works, particularly in the judicial system, where we rely quite heavily on things like eyewitness accounts. And she describes an experiment that involved showing people a film of a simulated accident uh, in this a traffic accident. One group was asked how fast were the cars going when they hit each other. And another group was asked how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other. So the only difference in the question was one said hit and the other one said smashed into. And that slight change of wording altered participants' memories. The second group who, you, who heard the word smashed, estimated a much higher speed for the cars and they were much more likely to say they saw broken glass on the road when there was no broken glass there at all. So not only did it change their memory of what they'd seen so that they estimated speeds differently, but it changed what they saw so they, they remembered seeing things that literally weren't there at all. 
So the language we use when we're recalling a memory, and that again, that applies internally, because when we're, when we're thinking about a memory, our brain uses narrative, it uses language in our own heads to retell the story. We know you catch yourself remembering an incident and you immediately there are words wrapped around it. And the language we use in retelling that story, recalling that memory, can change it too. This helps explain why when the brain recalls a memory and it's using that rewriting thing and then looking at the copy, as words, as words change slightly. So we go from hit to smashed into. We go from uh, uh, pain to chronic pain. We go from whatever it might be. To, as we use more dramatic language, more flowery language, more descriptive language perhaps, we, we change the memory, we start inserting false memories and we can't, and because we, because our brain's only, because the only way we have to recall that is what our brain is telling us, we believe it's true. Again, quote unquote, true. <laughs> okay, and here, Brenda, I'm getting to the really exciting bit, you'll like this, you'll like this so much. The fluid, so the fluid nature of memory, we already know it's subject to language distortion. We know it's subject to, you know, being rewritten over time. This is not our only wiggle room when it comes to belief. The, here's the key part that I really like. We make stuff up, not intentionally and not consciously. That's the key thing here. We may not be conscious of it, but we do it all the time. And that's because humans are sense-making creatures. We need things to hang together in a plausible and coherent way. Um, and in fact, the brain research has shown that when we assemble the pieces of memory into a story, because remember that's how our brain retells it to us as a story, we don't need it to provide accuracy. I want to repeat that because I think this is so crucial. I think this is at the heart of changing belief. We don't need our memories to be accurate. We only need them to provide coherence so that we can assign meaning that it's thought that this desire for coherence, this need, it's not a desire, it's a drive, this need for coherence comes about purely in order to, for our brains to give us a sense of who we are, where we are, what we're doing in a sort of a bigger framework, our place in the world. And because of this deep craving for meaning, we tend to confabulate, in other words, to fill in the gaps of memory with plausible inventions that keep the story making sense. So if you can remember back to the last time you had a dream, which was very fragmentary and just, dis just disjointed and it was sort of, there were leaps and gaps and so on. We're okay with that in a dream scenario, but we do not like that when it comes to memory, to things that happened. And so we just can't help but fill in the gaps in our knowledge to, keep, to create this coherent story about the things that happen to us, about the things we see going on around us. And we are driven to this. We, keep, we want to make up stories about the bits we cannot know. So this is why conspiracy theories are so attractive. This is why we see conversations, passionate conversations about what other people are thinking or how they're behaving when we can't see them. What really happened to JFK? Who's to blame for the missing aircraft? What really happened? You know, it, that we have both individually and as a species, we have this obsession with filling in the gaps. So these made up pieces of a story become part of the memory collection upon which our brains form these beliefs about what's possible. So not only is memory fluid and subject to change, the original story itself may well have contained pieces that we made up based on what our brain already believed to be true. 
So when we're making up these pieces or filling in the gaps, the way we do it is, or the way our brains do it is by looking at what's already gone before because the, the piece we insert into the gap has to be plausible. And it, the only way it can be plausible if it is if it already fits with our belief about what's true. So for a woman who's sitting at home waiting for her partner to come home to come to come home and he's running late, if her exper- previous experience has had her believing that men are untrustworthy, her brain will fill in the gap of his you know that will fill in the story and say he's late because he's playing around with his secretary. For a woman whose previous experience has led her to believe that all men are trustworthy, that will be the last thing she thinks of. She will immediately go, hmm, maybe he's just you know, got caught in traffic or maybe he's had a traffic accident or maybe something else. She'll come up with a different theory. So our theories about what's happening, our beliefs about what's really going on are predicated on pieces of our memory that we've made up to fill in the gaps and those are in turn made up of the very wobbly memories that have gone before. So can you see how when we look at it from this perspective, all of a sudden everything that we believe is looking extremely wobbly. But the good news is that we are not our brains. We are the users of our brains. So when you know this stuff, we immediately get to choose. We get to say, okay, all the wobbly bits that I like, I'm going to compl- I'm just going to choose for them to be true. All the things that say it's you know all is well. I'm well provided for. Everything is safe. The world is wonderful. I'm going to keep believing all of those because I can. And I you know I, I choose that illusion of the world, that version of reality. And all the memories and all the beliefs that say things are hard or it's not possible or there are limits to what I can create or I can only be happy with certain types of conditions and scenarios or there's only one way to achieve this thing that I want any of those beliefs we can we can we can question those we can we can take the step to kind of go well and we the nice thing is we don't have to unpick where those beliefs came from or where the memory is if we if we're aware of it and we can sort of go well I don't I choose not to remember remember it that way then we can certainly do that thing I suggested, Brenda, of, of rewriting that story if we want to. But it's not necessary. You know, we can simply say, well, I now know that my memory is not reliable, my belief is not reliable, so I can just go, it's gone. Um, so we can we yeah. can choose because we're the users of our brain. So does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. And does it feel kind of nice to know that that ugly story is it's pretty it's pretty unreliable. <laughs> Not yeah. in a way that, and, and it's not that you're making it up. It, it's not that you've made up something in order to, I don't know. That again, because of the way our brains work, there is this tendency to kind of assume that, oh, well, if I, I made it up to get attention at the time, or I made it up for some other reason, and that's not true. It's just a function of how the brain works, and knowing that we're just the users of our, that we are the users of our brain. These are, it's just some squishy wear. It's a bit like when our, you know, when our hard drive has a glitch in it, and we get it fixed. It's that's what that's all we're doing when we're questioning these old beliefs and sort of going, well, I'm choosing a new one. It's just fixing a glitch in our squishy wear. That's all we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, because for me, for me to um, think about that. Uh, that memory um like i only have one picture of that memory of how things went down mm-hmm. but the story that i 
told around what happened left me with a really awful feeling that that can still it can still resurface today that feeling surrounding that story um and it's certainly true that something that was extremely traumatic is is it's less subject to change Uh, and what you've identified here which is really smart is the distinction between the event itself because the trauma of that event it will leave a scar of course but the scar it's a bit like when we get a you know if if i i still carry a scar on my knee from a very uh, a pretty serious um a pretty deep cut that happened when i was in my 20s uh a couple of decades ago uh but the, the the presence of the scar doesn't necessarily mean that I'm still going to have pain around that area. So in the same way, when we've got a traumatic event from the past, I'm not denying the trauma of it and I'm not denying that it happened. But what I am saying and what you're teasing out here is that we get to change the story about it. We get to change the story about who did what and why. We get to change the story about what it meant about ourselves and who we were and who we are. So we don't we no longer have to wear the, the badge that says victim or the badge that says, you know, overly vulnerable or the badge that says, uh, you know, uh, certain types of people are untrustworthy or whatever that story has kind of, the, whatever the belief around that has emerged as a result of that story. So we get to go back and change it. Fantastic. <laughs> mm, which is so cool. <laughs> it is. And one of the the reason that I... That sometimes, for anyone who's listening to this um, in the recording, if the story feels like it's really big, so for example, um, if it's more to do with a long period of time, like a childhood, uh, it can feel really hard to change the details of that or to change the story. And starting out by writing it as a fairy story once upon a time there's a little girl called Brenda who blah 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 mm-hmm. um, we can replace an abusive parent with a very loving parent we can replace uh, a, a horrible bullying school environment with a very supportive school environment with wonderful teachers and uh, classmates <clears throat> so we can uh, and we know that we're not we know that we're sort of writing a story that doesn't match our memory but as we play with this and we rewrite it in different ways uh, it softens that old memory it starts to because memory is so fluid it starts to help us to we will begin to remember things like so I was I was bullied at school uh, at high school and when I retell the story and say once upon a time there was a little girl called Janet who had the most amazing school experience in her teenage years. There was this amazing teacher called Miss English who was our who taught us literature and who really cared about how I learned. And that's true. I know that that's true. I can, but I wouldn't not have remembered it while I was caught up in the in the belief of being the belief of myself as someone who was bullied at high school. Um, so the moment I start telling the story and looking, as soon as I get my brain looking for details that run run closer to the belief that I want to have, it will deliver. It will it will find those details for me, which is kind of cool. It really is. And if you, as you're talking, I, and I'm going over my own story from when I was six or seven, I, I'm just conjuring up little little things that I could embellish them with on that would make it more of a favorable memory and and my my feeling around it already is kind of soft and it's more like 
a fairy story. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful. It's amazing how this works. And and for my money, knowing that this is knowing this functional stuff really helps us with this because it's it's kind of easier than we think it is. And you'll want to practice it a bit because you know you're reprogramming your brain here, so, <laughs> so you want to kind of play with it a bit. But all but the fact that it's already softening, it just goes to show how quick and easy this can be. You know how 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 uh, how malleable our brain is. Um, so the next little bit I want to talk about is uh, about what about belief in the present, like how our brains work when it comes to believing something new, um, and uh, and um, how the actual process of belief works. Because this is something that isn't. There's not yet a lot of research on this. Uh, there's been some research on things like um, religious belief. Uh, and not just not just religious belief, but faith-based belief, any belief, any kind of belief around, um, uh, you know, that, that things will work out well. And what they know is that people who have some kind of faith-based belief system, and I would count deliberate creators amongst those, um, is that our brains are really good at producing serotonin, which is one of the feel-good chemicals. So when we're in the act of uh, accessing our belief that things are possible, our brains get flooded with, with chemicals that make us feel better. So that act of stepping into that belief, choosing that belief actually helps us feel good. And we know that obviously that's something that we want to do. So the more we can step into that belief, the, the better we feel. But um, So that's just a kind of side note, which won't come as a surprise to deliberate creators, I don't think. But I want to talk about one experiment that that was done, which uh, which confirmed. So this was a research done at UCLA by Sam Harris. Um, they performed functional MRIs on people as they were being presented with a series of statements, and asked to assess if each statement were true, false, or undecidable, something they couldn't know. They could, they they were uncertain about. So there were things like you know statements such as most people have ten toes. Uh, 62 can be evenly divided by 9 uh, or you had eggs for breakfast on December the 9th 1999 so I loved how they came up with the uncertain ones it's like I've no idea (laughs) I can't remember Um, so and what they found was that the research confirmed a long-held theory of psychology which says that simply understanding a statement creates a kind of tacit acceptance of that statement as being true Whereas disbelief and uncertainty both require a subsequent process of rejection. So in other words, what seems to happen is that when a statement is made, our default position is to accept it as true until it's proven otherwise. And we know this because people's brains lit up faster for true than they did for false or uncertain. So what this means is that we we do we involve we seem to involve some very sophisticated brain systems in order to assess the truth of the statement. So this basically remember we this is, what we're doing is assessing whether these statements match what we all what our brains already know to be true. And the final decision to accept something as true or not actually seems to rely on some kind of primitive first impressions kind of processing. So. What does this mean for us in the real world? Because you know this is fantastic in theory and very interesting, but it's all a bit kind of ephemeral and theoretical. 
what it means is that we have even more power to question our assumptions about what's possible. So let me give you an example from my own life. Uh, when I was a kid playing, playing games, uh, the one game I really loathed was Monopoly. And the reason I loathed it was because when I played it, I would, I would consistently have bad throws of the dice to the point where other people noticed it, other people commented on it. So as, you know, as I tried playing it as a kid, the more I played it, the worse my dice throws got to the point where other people commented on it. Not surprisingly, I developed an extreme dislike of it and I stopped playing it. Now, left to, my, left to its own devices, my brain would have continued to see me as being unlucky at Monopoly. And it's a good thing. I now know how to question that conclusion. So that assumption was wrong. That assumption was based on the very first time I played it and I got a bad sequence. I just got unlucky for that particular game. I got some bad throws. My brain immediately assumed it leapt to the conclusion, the reasonable conclusion in its own you know, mind, as it were, it leapt to the conclusion that I was unlucky at Monopoly and subsequently it started to perceive only the unlucky throws, the bad throws, to the point where I would vocalise about it and everyone else would start to be aware of it too because their brains were starting to only see unlucky Janet throwing the throw of the dice. Can you see how this is working? Because it's not just my brain at play, it's theirs as well. And as the more we all collectively noticed it, the worse it got. Happily, I decided to question that conclusion. And at the beginning of 2013, my husband and I went away for a weekend where we took board games and I decided I was going to be the best Monopoly player in the room and I whooped my husband at Monopoly, <laughs> which cracked me up. And I had, I'm not kidding you, I had the best dice throws ever. So the reason that all of this matters, all the stuff about memory, all the stuff about assumptions in the moment, in the red hot moment, is you, we, we know that we can question it. The moment we become aware of some expectation, some belief that isn't a match for what we want, a belief that you can't have that thing, it's time to question it. Uh, so I want to share a really fantastic story about research into the phenomenon of luck because I think this is really important. This is, a, this is a thing about perception of ourselves and what's possible for us. Because remember, right at the beginning I said, if you can believe 24-7, 100% in your power to manifest anything, then you, your brain's already on side. None of, this is, none of this matters. You've already done all this. But if, like me, there are days where you kind of go, I, I'm, I, I need to do some work to get my brain on board with this. I need to do some visualizing. I need to do some pray rain journal to remind my brain of why this works and how powerful I am, if, whatever it might be, then knowing this stuff is helpful. So... There was a researcher called Richard Wiseman who set out to investigate the phenomenon of luck. What he found is that not surprisingly, in scientific terms, there is no such thing as luck. But there is a huge difference between people who believe they are lucky and people who believe they are unlucky. So the research itself, what he did was he asked volunteers to look through a newspaper and count how many photos were in it and then timed how long it took for them to... to so there were two things he was looking for. He was looking for how accurate they were and how long it took. The people who claimed to be lucky took seconds to accomplish the task and the people who saw themselves as unlucky, who you know, self-identified as unlucky, <clears throat> took an average of two minutes. And what made the wow. difference? On page, I know, this is, but the thing that cracks me up is how did, they, how did the people who were lucky do it so fast? Because on page two of the newspaper was a very large ad which said, stop counting, 
there are 43 photos in this newspaper. <laughs> the unlucky people said later that they didn't see it. <clears throat> so they looked right past this opportunity, which the lucky people jumped on. So what's happening is it's highly unlikely that the unlucky people's eyes didn't see the ad because it was big and they were looking straight at the newspaper. They were focused on the newspaper. That's what they were there to do was look at the newspaper. But their brains didn't complete the processing and delivery of the ad because from their brain's perspective, it was irrelevant data that didn't fit with their belief of I am unlucky. So the only difference was to do with whether people believed they were lucky, which impacted what their brain delivered to them as a, into their conscious awareness. So the lucky people saw the ads with their brains. They all, they all saw it with their eyes, but only the lucky people received that, got the delivery of it. And the unlucky people were just literally blind to it. They couldn't see the ad. And the, if they did see the ad, it wasn't strong enough for them to act on it. It wasn't strong enough for them to believe it, to believe that it was real, to believe that it was um, something worth pursuing. So remember, we, I just said, uh, talked about our, the, our brains. Our brains have a tendency to accept things at face value, and the evidence, and then saying that's not true takes a nanosecond longer. So the brains of the unlucky people who saw the ad and didn't take it at face value were actually working a little bit harder in order to reject it and keep on looking for the newspaper, but they wouldn't have been aware of that. So if you can imagine it, if their brains didn't have that filter of I'm unlucky they would have simply seen that ad and gone, oh, well, I'm just going to stop reading now. There are 43 photos. Done. Yeah, yeah they, they probably wouldn't have even had to believe they were lucky, but they would have not, right. they would have needed not to have the belief that they were unlucky. Is that? Oh, my God. Thank you. That was the very next piece I was going okay. to say, is to say <laughs> we don't have to even believe we're lucky. A neutral brain, you got it, a neutral brain which had stepped back from the belief in unlucky or can't happen for me, a neutral brain would see that ad and accept it because that's the first default position is to accept what we see at face value. So with no particular reason in place to reject it, that neutral brain would assume that, they, first of all, it would see the ad and pass it on to the... So the neutral brain would... would the, the eyes would see it, the brain would go, ooh, that's good, pass it on to its owner, that person would then be able to see it with their brain and then be able to take advantage of the opportunity. So it's not necessary for someone to believe they're lucky. It's only necessary for them to drop the belief in being unlucky. And I think that, you just nailed it, Brenda. It's like, oh my God, when we let go of that belief about unlucky or can't happen or impossible, that's the true power right there. there right, right there. So I think that answers the question from, from the perspective of the brain science. I think that answers the question about is it necessary for us to, to believe that what we desire is to, to believe in the thing that we desire and yes of course it's fantastic when we do because it gets our brain on board with it but it's not essential it's not because I think if we have a belief that says I can only have this thing if I can believe in it then we're already kind of trapping ourselves in a you know if we can't believe in it we're trapping ourselves in a, in a kind of self-perpetuating construct that says, I can't have this thing because I can't believe in it. So I want to call bullshit on that idea <laughs> because I don't think it's empowering for a start. Um, Fantastic. And, uh, and because it's, you know, uh, 
it's much more useful to say, well, all we have to do is let go of that construct that says this thing is impossible for me. Um, so that's my last little piece is how, what does the brain science tell us about how to change a belief? Um, and the recent research supports a, a somewhat common sense view, which is that we use, ex, we use exactly the same process neurologically to change a belief that we use when we're learning. Because what we're doing, it's the same thing. It's identity shifting. We're stepping into the identity of someone who believes that anything was possible. We don't have to maintain that 24-7, by the way, but we do have to allow for the possibility of it to happen in order for our brains to get on board with it. And this makes sense. So when we learn something new, so let's say whether we're learning a language or playing the violin, we begin by, what we're doing is creating new neural pathways. And we know that a belief is simply a neural pathway. Uh, a thought is a neural, a thought, when we have a new thought or a new, when we're doing a new skill, the metaphor that, neuro, that neuroscientists use goes like this. The first time we have a thought or we try a new skill, it's like someone walking through an open meadow. So it lights up a new neural pathway in our brain. and it leaves a, So someone walks through an open meadow, it leaves a faint trace in the grass. And as that thought gets repeated, because <clears throat> we know a belief is just a thought we keep thinking, as that thought is repeated or the skill is practiced, it's like that poor person walking along the same pathway until a track is worn in the grass. What it, what it actually looks like neurologically is more and more and more nerve cells light up in, in along the same pathway. So as it gets repeated again and again and again, the track becomes a road, the road becomes a four-lane highway, and eventually it's a superhighway, and it's a really thick neural pathway that lights up each time. So it's easy to see that having a new thought or having a new, learning a new skill, it's like wading through virgin grass again, that virgin territory. So when we're in a situation which could potentially trigger, a, trigger an old belief, you can see that, that in that moment, in that sort of, if we're coming at it from this default muggle, unaware way of being, it's our, our thought processes are just going to use the old superhighway. It's just that that's the path of least resistance. So making the choice to walk through the meadow and use these new thoughts rather than going down the default superhighway, that's what we're doing when we practice these new thoughts in order to replace an old belief. So when we understand how the brain is working, we can actually use this, how it works for learning a new skill. We can take that understanding of how the brain learns and we can apply it to the same principles of changing a belief. So what we're doing is learning a new belief. So one of the things we know uh, is that one of the key reasons for the existence of pleasure in animals such as humans is its role in the learning systems of the brain. You've only got to watch a dog learning a new trick and you'll see it played out in the wagging tail, the big grin of delight, uh, the excitement of having mastered something. There's this connection between learning and reward that's a very fundamental pr process within the brain that we can use to our advantage. We know that when we're learning something new and we're getting it right, so every time we're practicing this new skill, we get a flush of reward-based pleasure and it releases a flood of dopamine in our brains. This flood of dopamine doesn't just encourage us to keep learning. So it becomes a reward. You, we know how good it feels when we have that new thought, how good it feels. When we have that, when we, you know, we're, we remember the new word we've just learned in French. We know how good that feels. 
but there's something else going on. So it's so it's a, it's a motivation, it's an incentive to keep us learning. So that's part of its function, but it's not the whole story. Dopamine actually works in the brain to speed up the formation of new neural pathways. It won't come to, as a surprise to any deliberate creator to know that changing a belief is much easier when there's pleasure involved. Because I'm here to tell you, if it ain't fun, if it doesn't feel rewarding, if you're not getting that flood of dopamine, changing a belief is much harder than it needs to be. So as we change this belief, as we're making this track through the virgin meadows, if we can incorporate dopamine into the process, that process itself is accelerated. Our change of beliefs happens faster and more easily than if we're doing it through hard work. So this is why if we're using something like prey rain journaling, for example, because with prey rain journaling, we're not asking, we're not using prey rain journaling to ask the universe for something. The universe, our desire is already known. We know from Abraham's three-step process, you know, we ask, the desire is met. Those two things are already done. All we're doing, we're using something like prey rain journaling to, to get ourselves on board with allowing. And as we do that, if, if the act of writing as if this thing has already happened brings pleasure, we're flooding our brains with dopamine. We're getting our brain on board with the idea of this thing being possible. And that's why if it becomes a chore or it becomes boring, we, we want to drop it because it's not working anymore. Or at least it's not, it's not helping. We want to find something else, some other way of playing with it, with this new, this new version of reality. So... What that means is understanding all of this stuff. You don't have to go and do all this technical stuff with your brain. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You just have to just have to remind yourself that, first of all, the old beliefs are really, really wobbly and shaky. You don't need to believe them at all. They're an illusion. In fact, we could say that everything we think about the universe is an illusion. It's a construct, which is a very existential way of seeing the world, and I kind of like it because it's fun. But... <laughs> um, uh, we get to, we're the users of our brain. We get to decide what beliefs we want to change and which ones we want to keep. And when we want to change belief, we want to engage sensory pleasure in a really deliberate way. So how we get that pleasure is a very personal thing. Um, in my vibration rehab program, where which is designed for tackling really nasty, sticky old beliefs, um, part of that process of change involves engaging sensory pleasure in a very deliberate way. So uh, whether it's the pleasure of, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the pleasure we get from prey rain journaling where we're imagining this very juicy version of, of, of reality in which this thing is already there. We're engaging pleasure in a, in a more um, ephemeral way and it's still going to work. Uh, if you do it using a beautiful pen that you love on beautiful parchment kind of thick paper that's lovely to write on, or at least I like thick paper, some people like thin paper, whatever it is that you like, you're going to amp up that process even more. If you can find sensory pleasure when you're implementing manifesting tools, it's going to amp up the process even more. And I think that's, that's kind of something that's really worth knowing. So for most of us, most of the time, changing belief can actually be pretty simple. Question every thought that doesn't feel good every time you become aware of it. We know that memory is fluid and treacherous and that your brain is looking for coherence, not accuracy. So as a user of your brain, you have the power to choose a better feeling memory, a better feeling thought right there in that red hot moment. 
there's no such thing as true. Uh, you know, remember Abraham sometimes mocks people for that desire to say, but it's true. We know now from how what we know of the brain and how it works that it's all open for, for question. And that means when you look at something, a memory or a belief that isn't what you're serving what you want, you can question it. You can question it really easily. And when you do do that question, you want to back up and you want to create a new belief, a new thought, back it up with some pleasure. Activate the feel good in whatever way you can. And then you'll see this whole landscape of old beliefs changing really quickly and easily. And for anyone who doesn't and wants to get some more support, by all means, you know, get in touch. But you'll find heaps and heaps of resources around for, for shifting those beliefs. And when you, what I love about this is that when we look at those when we look at those techniques, if we look at something like Brian Katie's The Work, for example, it's that the first question is, is it true? And what that means is, is there a possibility, is, that, is there a possi possibility that that belief is worth questioning? And the answer is usually, it, no, it's not, I can't be absolutely certain that it's true. When we're looking at reframing the, the, the belief in a new way that she uses, we're looking at finding the positive version of it and that's going to bring a, a, that sense of pleasure that we couldn't have got before when we were looking at the, the sticky old version of it. Uh, so you can kind of see how excited I get about this stuff. <laughs> um, so any questions? Um, I, I just have a, a comment and I... I it was just a, a memory I had when you were talking about bringing sensory pleasure, incorporating mm -hmm. sensory pleasure into uh, things that you want to learn. Um, I remember uh, several years ago I was taking accounting and my brain doesn't want to work that way. It didn't seem to then. And so I ended up, after much frustration and struggle, I ended up uh, going through a stationery store one day and um, I'm a pretty tactile person. Um, I like yeah. the sensory things, and I ended up buying a, a mechanical pencil um, that uh, oh, that that was touted to have, you know, s soft flowing lead, and um, and I, and I bought a really cool eraser that I one like I used to use when I was in grade school, and just the mm -hmm. act of of writing with that pencil, uh, writing the, the the short strokes of numbers and then when I made a mistake, I I got to erase it with my eraser, and 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 Wonderful. and then the challenge of going back to find the mistake. I ended up passing that class um, with really, you know, a really good mark. Um, whereas <laughs> just just because I got such a charge out of um, the feeling of yeah. the, the pencil lead and and the eraser, <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. This helps to explain why I don't know if you guys have heard this on the uh, on, it's been all over the internet, but Cambridge University have just uh, uh, created a position for a professor of Lego, and uh, <laughs> it's designed because they they are looking at the relationship between play, uh, the, you know the importance of play in education, and it all comes back to this thing of the you know if we know from uh, from years of research that. Uh, that kids learn more readily if it's if it's wrapped up in play, and the same is true for adults. Our brains work just the same way as kids do in this respect. That uh, if there's sensory 
engagement, sensory pleasure, or or or, or the or if we can bring fun to it, it's going to have the same effect. And uh, I remember watching. Oh, there's some movie. I can't remember which movie it is. Oh, um, uh, Long Kiss Goodnight. One of the funniest moments in that is where one of the characters, um, the way he remembers whether he's done all the things that you know he needs to do before he leaves the house, like you know turning off the lights and locking the door, he sings it to himself as a blues riff. And uh, I've done that myself. You know, if there's something I want to remember, I'll sing it to myself, uh, and that helps to lodge it because it's. Uh, it's partly because of the way that it's it's kind of it gets past my defences a little bit if, if if I can use that analogy, but it actually means I'm paying attention to it, which is one of the first things you need to do when you, in order to form a memory, the brain has to have something engaging, otherwise it will just ignore it. It's like a sticky note that says remember this. So um, you know, singing it is is activating that sort of the whole whole non-standard uh, mode of of thinking <laughs> yeah. uh, and it has that sensory pleasure to it of vocalizing out loud and moving my hips and kind of dancing to it so yeah anytime you're trying to learn something you try dancing to it <laughs> <laughs> or I like your I love that I love I love how you found that solution Brenda that's so that's really fantastic uh, a fantastic solution that's it's great yeah, yeah and I think it goes some way towards uh, we know from the research, for example, that um, students who take notes in class by hand are far more likely to retain uh, the information than students who take notes on a laptop. And I, my immediate reaction when I read that research was, because I haven't looked at why yet, but my immediate thought was, I bet it's because there's a sensory enjoyment in if for those students who found the right combination of pen and paper or pencil and paper. Yeah, and that it, right combination it, is so important, i found. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, guest seven's just said in chat, I learned how to spell geography by repeating George Edwards' old grandfather wrote a pig home yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's <brilliant. laughs> That's a really good example of that kind of, you know, it's uh, those, those uh, mnemonics that we use for remembering things. Uh, part of the reason that we remember it is because there's a delight in the silliness of it. Because a lot of them are really silly, um, uh, and it's, it, it kind of engages our fun. It's Julie B. <laughs> Thanks for that, Julie. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> oh dear. All right. So uh, if there aren't any questions, we're right at the top of the hour. I'll wrap up the call. But if there's uh, any more questions that people have, or any observations you want to make, or no, fantastic. Well, that was thank wonderful. You so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Brenda. And thank you for asking really good questions. That was fantastic. And <laughs> These are some um, of my favorite calls, the ones that you do. I have my favorite go-to um, uh, audios on my iPod, and uh, your ones on the, the brain science ones uh, through GVU are among my, my go-tos. They'll give me juice every time. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. And... Um, uh, I'm so glad that I got that captured on the recording because <laughs> on those days when my brain is telling me that nobody really likes this stuff, oh. I'm going to go back to that. <laughs> no way, I love it. <laughs> All right, thank you everyone. I'm just going to end the recording. Thank you, Janet.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.